You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. We've never experienced a year like 2020. A deadly pandemic, political division, social unrest, natural disasters. Yet, we're still here, and now so are the holidays. Hi, I'm John Doherty. May this holiday season bring you joy and peace. May 2021 be a better year for all of us. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy and Healthy New Year. Happy Holidays from IBEW Local 98. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams? What I know to be true is that women were always meant to lead. And by shining a light on those doing it well today, my hope is that more women will be inspired to use their own voice. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and it's always great to be back with all of you. We have a, another great show for you tonight with not only a very special guest, but our watch team and a past guest who's going to be checking in to let us know what she's been up to. In just a moment, I will be joined by Angelou Ezilo, the founder and CEO of the Greening Youth Foundation, um, which is an incredible international nonprofit that aims to engage and educate youth and young adults in conservation and environmental issues. She's doing something very, very unique and receiving a lot of attention, uh, of attention for her work with GYF. She'll be with me in just a moment. If you're new to the show and you would like to learn more about our Watch Team of On-Air contributors, I encourage you to reach out to Laura Scotty. You can email Laura at laura at womentowatch.net, and that's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and download the podcast 
when you visit us at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show. So now I'm very honored and excited to welcome to the show this evening again, Angelou Ezelo. <laughs> I think That's I got it. that right. Got there we go. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. Well, you and I connected a couple of months ago, I guess it's been now, and, and I've been following your work and just really excited um, for you. And I think what you're doing is so smart. And of course, with all the issues going on today around uh, you know our environment and conservation and people paying more attention, I think it's going to have incredible impact. And uh, I wanted to, you know, of course, kind of connect the dots between your um, younger years and the work you're doing today. So I thought we'd open with you're talking a little bit about your life growing up in Jersey City, but spending some um, quality time vacationing up in upstate New York. Tell me, tell me exactly. what your, yeah, can you tell me first what your earliest memory is of um, taking a trip up there, which was so, you know, uniquely different from where you lived? Exactly. Yeah. Just again, thank you so much for having me on. I'm always looking forward to sharing the story of uh, Greening Youth Foundation and our journey. Um, yeah, just it, it, it definitely started, I think. Um, when I was a young girl growing up in Jersey City, New Jersey, I, I am the youngest of three, and um, my parents had um, the foresight to purchase 54 acres of land in upstate New York. So although we grew up in Jersey City, which is, you know, lots of concrete, I mean, we found green spaces in the parks. Um, but, and, and of course, New Jersey is known for being the garden state. Perhaps that's not the only reason it's known for nowadays, but, <laughs> but, um, we, we, we had property in upstate New York in a town called Sio. Um, and we would go there every summer and it was quite a, a drive away. Um, but I just remember being a little girl and just always being so excited to go, because it was where I could just be free. And, you know, there was this small, humble home, but, you know, it was surrounded by all this forested land. And we would do, you know, so many special things as a family, engaging nature. We would go on these incredible hikes where we would pick berries and there were all sorts of, um, you know, salamanders and snakes that I befriended. And, you know, it was just really, <laughs> really a magical moment. Um, and a lot of that, um, I think that's where my connection to the outdoors and to nature first started, especially in retrospect. So tell me how your, your parents um, connected with that place. What was it that inspired them to um, first visit there and purchase that property? Yeah, that's really a good question. I mean, my dad, my dad was the leader of uh, a band. It was like yeah, a band from the 60s called the LTG Exchange. And they were like, you know, they did um, kind of like a fusion of, of blues and, and disco and and pop and all that. So they initially, it, I think that was what they wanted a place for their family, but it was also a place for the band to go and practice and record. 
Um, but it quickly became known as like this family gem because even I remember um, having my girlfriends and, and so each of my siblings, we would bring a friend there and, you know, uh, cousins would go as well. So, you know, and I, I think back then, and I did ask my mom and she said that, you know, we just saw an opportunity to really have our family escape, escape the densely populated streets of Jersey City, you know, to be in open space and be, you know, uh, connected to nature. And it was very close to um, Niagara Falls. I remember we would also go there. It was just really special. And I'm so thankful to them for, you know, because you're right, it was very, very um unusual, especially for an African-American family back then to, um, you know, think of acquiring this much land and, you know, and not to build on it, you know, just to really have a, a this oasis, this place that we would go to, to just be ourselves and be connected as a family with nature. Yeah. What a, what a healthy um, thing to do, right? You had this experience of two different worlds and, you know, we, talk on the show frequently about the need to kind of escape the noise and the, um, the fast-paced um, society we live in, right? So that was it's just right, so incredibly right. um, smart of your parents. I understand that you were named after Maya Angelou. And yeah, how, another, how wonderful. Another cool reason, I mean, another cool thing my parents did, right? Yeah. To name me after such an incredible, a phenomenal woman like Dr. Maya Angelou. Um, and in fact, I mean, I, I really haven't, I don't think I've ever heard, and you correct me if you've heard of another woman with Angelou as their first name. I mean, you hear Maya quite yes. often. In fact, I have a niece named Maya, but I've never really, even to this day, and I turn, Sue, I turned 50 years old on Friday, so oh, happy birthday. <laughs> you look yes, amazing. You look you. amazing, by oh, the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I am super excited. I'm, I, but my grandmother, she's a, actually, I should say that my grandmother really was the first one to connect me to nature. She had like this awesome, like in Jersey City, New Jersey, we had like a brownstone where we grew up in. But, you know, if you know these brownstones, there's not a whole lot of like land in the front or the back. But we had this really quaint four by six garden that she tended to and it was certainly her garden and I was her deputy so I would help her you know with planting different plants we had sunflowers and she taught me how to take the seeds out and we would bake them I mean so it was my grandmother I would say that first kind of helped me put my hands in the earth so that I can that that connection just just never left even after I went on to do law and all the other things that I did, it was always, that seed was always planted. Yeah. And um, I, you no know, I want, <laughs> I wonder if you were, yes, I love that, you know, innately, uh, you know, not a lot of young girls like to play in the dirt and are happy around snakes and <laughs> critters and, <laughs> and creatures. So I, you know, my question for you was, what is it about nature that leaves you feeling happy? What do you think it is? Had you not been introduced I to it, I wonder if you would have found it yourself. Yeah, um, that, that's a really good question. And one, to your point about the critters and all that, I had an older brother. I Do I need to say anything else? I mean, he was four <laughs> years 
five years older and, you know, I kind of looked up to him and he was all about critters and dirt and all of that. So that's kind of a big part of probably why I was not a super girly girl growing up. But I, I do think that, um, I think that there's something and, and we certainly see it with young kids. It's, it's a it's it's well one now we know that it definitely has um healing properties you know there's all this science and research that has been done now that um the endorphins that are released when you even put your hands into dirt um into soil makes you feel better the endorphins and and things that are you know released when you even look at a tree not to mention the power of the tree and what trees do in terms of being the lungs for our planet. But just looking at them has a a positive effect on your health. So it's no wonder why children want to just get outside. And that certainly was the case when I was growing up. It was just get outside and you, and I don't know about you, but our parents were like just, they didn't even really know where we were until dinner time. Correct. <laughs> yes. I, yes. No, they did not. I grew same up the same thing, way. Right? Yep. Be home for dinner. Yeah, That's yeah. it. Yeah. You needed to be in that house for dinner time. But yeah. up until then, you were just out and exploring nature, exploring the outdoors with your friends playing. I mean, I, we grew up in Jersey City. So we, although our block, Pavonia Avenue, was between two parks. Um, which was pretty cool. But, you know, in a lot of urban spaces, there isn't, um, you know, this this big open green space, but you find that space. And that's kind of, that's what we did, you know, growing up was we found these pockets of green space um, and, and, and did, played games and all sorts of things. My brother played sports. He, he's an athlete, so he played baseball. I certainly, you know, played with my girlfriend's um, in parks and on green space that we can find. So um, it, it, it has a very, uh, um, I think the effect that it has on children is something that, you know, is, is definitely still holding truth to this day. It's just that their days are so structured and there's so much devices and YouTubes and so much more um, that they incorporate into their day. But we still got to make sure we balance that with nature. Yes, I agree. So, you know, the the structure, I think, is so one of the things that we're really kind of missing the boat on, thinking that it's the best thing for the kids to be so structured and scheduled when really their time to explore um, is far more important for their development. It is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's certainly um, there's books and terms like the nature deficit disorder. Richard Louvre has written a great book about that and, and actually many others afterwards. Okay. So, you know, there we're seeing the negative effects of them, them having this structured, very digital life, you know, yeah. attached to screens. So right. we do have to work on that. Uh, we're going to go into our first break. Stay with us as I uh, speak to Angelou Ezelo. We will be right back. Got it. Now the women to watch. Legal Watch. This is Nicole Hitner at Ballard Spar Law Firm for Legal Watch. COVID-19 ripped through the globe in a way that hasn't been seen in decades. Now vaccines for this deadly virus are becoming available, but who will be vaccinated? 
Can employers mandate vaccines? Yes, mostly. As with any mandatory vaccine, exemptions must be made for employees who cannot be vaccinated due to disabilities or sincerely held religious beliefs. What employers do not have to do is provide accommodations for secular or medical beliefs about vaccines. Further, if a mandatory vaccine policy is not imposed by a business, employees may allege that their employer failed to provide a safe and healthy work environment, something that's required by OSHA. The current guidance indicates that government agencies are very supportive of a mandatory COVID vaccine, including the determination by the EEOC that COVID-19 meets the definition of a direct threat. Employers have used that determination during the pandemic to implement screening of employees when reporting to work and asking of health questions that would otherwise be prohibited. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and now the vaccine has been and will continue to be groundbreaking from a legal perspective. We'll continue to keep watch on the legal developments surrounding this topic on your Legal Watch from Nicole Hittner. Now the Women to Watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. It's that time of year, holidays, glistening snow, but where there's snow, there's often ice. With our aging population, there's a growing number of hip fractures. Older adults have weaker bones and are more likely to fall because of decrease in balance, medication side effects, and difficulty maneuvering around hazards in their environment. Lesson number one, a fracture is a broken bone. Often people say, it's just a fracture, not a break. Fracture equals break, and hip fracture can substantially increase risk for death or major illness in an elderly patient. Risk is higher in women due to osteoporosis and with medical issues like hyperthyroidism, diabetes, cardiovascular, and some medicines like chronic steroids. Also, more likely in people who are thin with a BMI under 22. Take these steps to prevent a fall. Adjust any loose rugs. Clear the path from your bedroom to bathroom for trips during the night. Put a grab bar in your shower. Proper shoes, not slippers or leather soles that are slippery. And watch that first step out the door to the mailbox. Symptoms? Severe pain in the groin, side of the thigh, and just unable to walk. And if you fall, don't go to an urgent care. Call an ambulance and go to the emergency room. Sometimes a patient has a simple trip and fall, but an elderly patient may have had a stroke or heart attack that made them faint and then fall. The emergency room should also check for other broken bones or trauma to the head. Sometimes an x-ray looks normal. If you can't walk, don't leave the emergency room without a walker. Then see your doctor as soon as possible. You may need an MRI to find the break. The goal? Have surgery within 24 hours and no longer than 72 hours. Lying in bed can add to other issues like blood clots, urinary infections, and bed sores. Using pain meds can lead to confusion, aspiration, and pneumonia. The plan? Get to surgery, control the pain, get you back on your feet. Decrease your risk. Lots of good meds to protect your bones, calcium, vitamin D. Don't smoke, minimal alcohol, and regular exercise because a fall could make you a hippie. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Angelou Ezzelo, the CEO and founder of the Greening Youth Foundation. And um, we were learning all about your upbringing and really what, you know, what it is that has drawn you to nature. Um, I, I wanted to know why... Why are most people of color not aware of the opportunities that exist in conservation? What do you think the main reason is behind that? I think that um, there are actually 
quite a few reasons. The, I, I would say that the main reason is because it's, it's not really marketed in terms of recreating or even working in the outdoors. It's not something that is marketed to people of color, although people of color are definitely, you know, lovers of the outdoors. So if you look at, you know, marketing material for advertising the outdoors, the great outdoors, you don't see typically people of color doing things in the outdoors, although that's changing now thanks to, you know, um, some of the work some of my colleagues are doing and even some of outdoor retailer brands like, you know, the um, the North Face and the Patagonia and Columbia and so forth, but, um, or even Toyota, and uh, you know, so they're starting to feature people of color in the in their ads in you know showcasing the outdoors but even you know in terms of jobs you just don't see and this is something that still exists very much so now you know and we're working directly with a lot of our federal land management agencies like the national park service or the usda forest service or u.s fish and wildlife to um, make sure that there there's representation in their workforce because right now it's extremely homogeneous. It's white and male predominantly. So when you see, if you should visit these iconic places or these national treasures like Yosemite and, you know, all these really cool places, you don't often see people that represent, you know, society working for those places. So right away, if you should go there, you know, on a school trip or even a family trip, you're not necessarily, as a person of color, seeing that as something that you could even do, and certainly for a child. So that's why my favorite saying is um, something that Sally Ride, you know, the first female astronaut, said was, you have to see it to be it. So I often say that to our partners, because unless we start having representation, having diverse people as part of, you know, leadership and on these teams and in the workforce, then we're not going to attract people of color to these places. But the good thing is through the work of, you know, Greening Youth Foundation and Latino Outdoors and Native Land and a lot of different organizations that are really intentional about exposing young adults to these career pathways in the outdoors, we're starting to really see a change. Although it's not as fast as I would like, but it is happening. So, you know, what I, my message to a lot of these agencies, environmental orgs, outdoor recreation companies, outdoor retailer companies is that they have, in order to stay relevant, they must start including people of color on their staff, in their workforce, and showing that, you know, there there's a future in those careers and exposing it and, and opening um, they're broadening their reach of who they go after and recruit and talk to for those careers. So that's something that we are keenly um, and really acutely focused on at Greening Youth Foundation. And getting to children at a young age, right? If getting, you know, uh, bringing this education to them. Tell me, what was your aha moment? If if you can remember the moment you realized this disconnect between. Uh, preservation and the and the lack of education around it. Uh, my aha moment, actually. So um, I don't. Did we mention that I wrote this book, Engage, Connect, Protect, 
empowering diverse youth as environmental leaders? Not yet. Did we? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Not yet, but we will. <laughs> yes. Okay. So in that book, I actually talk about this aha, aha moment. So um, after practicing law, I went on to work for the Department of Agriculture doing farmland preservation, um, which led me to doing um, uh, public land conservation, working for the um, national NGO, the Trust for Public Land. I worked for them in their New York and New Jersey offices. And then when I moved down, when our family moved down to Georgia to be closer to um, my parents, um, I worked out of their Atlanta offices. And working on a project called, it's, it's quite known now, if you've heard of the Highland in, in New York, um, we have something here in Atlanta, Georgia, called the Beltline. It's a 22-mile loop of, you know, it was like it's <clears throat> from an abandoned railroad that goes around the city of Atlanta. And, you know, it now has these really cool, like, um, it's called the Emerald. It's like an Emerald Band around the city because it has parks and trails and so forth. And when I came down, I guess in the early 2000s, I, I came down with the opportunity to work on that Beltline. Um and while I was doing some of those initial acquisitions for parks on the Beltline is when I realized there was something going on that perhaps I needed to adjust. And it was because a lot of the acquisitions that I was doing were in uh, communities of color here in Atlanta. And when I was knocking on the doors to some of the landowners, I was confronted or, or on, um, at the door talking to someone that looked exactly like my grandmother or my auntie or someone like that. And, you know, of course, success for a project manager for the Trust for Public Land was bringing in um, a property under market value. So the, the infamous bargain sale. Um, so being able to acquire a property um, lower than what the property is um, marketed for is when I would get that at a boy or at a girl. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> so, yes. you know, but that was problematic for me because as soon as I would knock on that door, I would be, you know, greeted by this woman that was like, oh, come on in, baby. You know, uh, <laughs> she obviously saw me as like a granddaughter or something. And it was like, you know, when I would start, you know, doing this like brass knuckle uh, negotiating with her, she's like, oh, Whatever you want, you know, just, just just let me know what I need to do. Just fill it in for me. And I'd say, no, 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 no. You know? <laughs> and at that time, I'm like, is there someone in your family that I could talk to about this? You know, because she inherently trusted me. And, the, and that's when I realized that there was no one really advocating for these communities for people that look like, you know, me, you know, essentially, or my grandmother, because these people lived in these communities, have owned these homes for quite some time, but they didn't even see or understand the value of what was to come. So at that, that was my aha moment, because I really found it troubling to kind of negotiate understanding, because they didn't even know, it wasn't published, what was going to be happening in these communities in terms of this Beltline thing that's coming that was going to increase the value of their home and taxes, but, you know, it's something that would be highly sought after to live near this Beltline. So that's when I realized that I needed to um, 
kind of, you know, educate communities, particularly youth about youth of color, about the importance of being stewards and, you know, about conservation and environmentalism. Wow. Wow. Thank thank God for you to really to step out and, and fill a role that was not there. Um, something I, I think about. Of, yeah. Something I think about often just, you know, when thinking about pres- land preservation and I live out in um, a pretty rural area and it's always a topic of discussion around the community um, in the efforts mm-hmm. in our efforts to preserve land. How do we kind of discern what areas should and need to be left uh, alone and and what areas are best suited for development where a development is going to bring um, a positive aspect to to a community yeah if i had the answer to that sue we i'd be a millionaire because yeah, yeah. That is, it's the biggest question the million dollar question right yeah right is how do you decide that balance you know obviously there are um uh architects and and land planners and you know there's so many people that work in this space but i think that as and i i kind of that made your question made me think of my experience working for the state of new jersey doing farmland preservation um because these farmers as you all as you know probably um and i know frank knows that in south jersey you know there are these blueberry farms and cranberry farms and you know that's where the country gets a lot of this these fruit and produce you know is from these farms in south jersey but a lot of the farmers are experiencing such and at least this was way back then when i was doing this work such financial um you know difficulties so when they would be approached by developers they would really they a lot of them were wanting and did in fact sell you know their farms because the, the the career of being a farmer wasn't necessarily something that was appealing to their offspring so their children weren't trying to like take over the family business of being a blueberry farmer or cranberry farmer so you know for various reasons the farmer found themselves in this position where they needed to survive so they needed to, you know, make money. So New Jersey was actually very um, forward thinking with um, transfer with their programs, you know, that they had like and they had these TDRs, which are the transfer of development rights. So actually, as a lawyer, what I did was um, negotiate with the farmer so that in exchange, almost like a a, a, a closing, it, it actually was a real estate closing. So in exchange for you know, permanently restricting a portion of their farm, they would actually receive money, you know, so, but the, the state would benefit because that portion of the land or whether it was all of it, but, you know, would always be a farm and it wouldn't, so they wouldn't feel this tug or this pull when the developer came knocking on their door to purchase their farm. So they would have resources to continue the work that they were doing, but it's a, it's a balancing act, you know, so there's obviously a need for housing and, you know, um, development, but there has to be a balance. And I think that the way that we do that is with a lot of community input, you know, by talking to the community and, and for the community to be a part of those, the, the public process when those discussions are, are happening within these municipalities and within towns and within states and counties. That's right, because every every community uh, is different, 
and, and wants something different. So there'll never be a system, you know, across the board, it'll be, you know, focusing on each individual project one at a time and, and determine it, right. And determining what's best. Um, and then of course that always ends up being difficult just because people have different priorities, but. Right. So there has to be some sort of criteria or formula as to what percentage remains rural and, you know, undeveloped and what does remain developed. I mean, the truth is where there's just so many people now, you know, so there, there, you know, places for them to live obviously need to be built, but, you know, we can certainly do that in a sustainable fashion. Sustainable growth is a thing, you know, so we sometimes just don't, don't do it well the way others do, but it's something that's so important. Right. Listen, we're going to go into another break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the Greening Youth Foundation and and what you do and perhaps share some stories of some young people whose eyes have been opened. I'm speaking with Angelou Ezelo this evening. Stay with us for our watch team. We'll be right back. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Hi, this is Terry, and I'm from Fortis Family Office. COVID-19 brought financial challenges to much of the public and forced companies to reimagine how business is done. Congress responded with generous relief, and much of it is related to the tax code. Last week, we outlined some of the tax planning considerations for 2020, and here are a few more. Required minimum distributions, or RMDs, were suspended for 2020. If your income is artificially low this year and you expect it to bounce back next year to a more normal level, whether that's through work or RMDs, you may want to consider recognizing some additional income this year by converting some or all of your IRA to a Roth IRA. Mutual funds are required to distribute the capital gains earned by the fund to shareholders. For a variety of reasons, many growth funds are poised to pay out higher-than-average distributions this year, and most of them occur in mid-December. If you own an actively managed mutual fund outside of a retirement account and it makes a big distribution, you'll owe taxes on those distributed gains, regardless of whether you spent the distribution or reinvested it back into the fund. Review your other investments to see if the gains can be offset by losses in other funds by December 31st to reduce your tax bill. If estate planning is a concern, there's a small window of opportunity to employ planning techniques while interest rates are still low and the lifetime gift exemption is at an all-time high. The current exemptions are set to expire in a few years and a new administration could accelerate that timeline. Businesses and employers are faced with other tax issues in 2020. For example, states have taken different approaches for taxpayers temporarily living and working in a different jurisdiction from where they were working prior to the pandemic. Many states released guidance for these employees and they created a state filing obligation for the employee or the employer. These rules are extremely complicated and very specific to each state. We recommend that business owners discuss their telecommuting policies with their tax advisors and employees to make sure that the appropriate state taxes have been withheld. This is Terry. Peace out. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Now, the Women to Watch, Nonprofit Watch. 
Good evening, Women to Watch listeners. I'm Dr. Nakia Owens, Managing Director of Financial Empowerment at the United Way of Greater Philadelphia and Southern New Jersey. Philadelphia's poverty narrative has presented as a consistent theme among the nation's top 10 largest cities, and that's nothing new to us. And recently, Philadelphia City Council approved a $10 million annual investment known as the Promise Fund. Now, this fund works in alignment with the city of Philadelphia's vision of lifting 100,000 Philadelphians out of poverty. A request for proposal was recently released, and the first set of significant size grants will be presented to several nonprofit organizations to increase their capacity to do and serve more of its community members, particularly around tax preparation as it concerns the earned income tax credit, benefit access, and family stability. Stay tuned for a second request for proposal release with a focus on workforce training, placement, and opportunities. United Way, in partnership with the City of Philadelphia, will work collaboratively around this fund to support existing organizations and initiatives that directly and have a proven track record of moving individuals and families out of poverty. The Promise Fund is a critical effort in supporting Philadelphians, particularly given the unprecedented challenges presented by the pandemic. For more information on the Promise Fund, go to www.unitedforimpact.org to learn more about the fund and upcoming requests for proposals, as I want to encourage other organizations that have a proven track record and have been working hard for years in lifting individuals and families out of poverty, and that can support the vision of changing Philadelphia's poverty narrative for good. And until next time, I'm Dr. Owens, your nonprofit watch. Now, more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Hi, Sue Rocco here with an update from one of our past guests. I'm with Mary Cantando, the author and founder of The Women's Advantage, who was with us last May. So, Mary, tell us what you've been up to. Well, we've been moving along like the rest of the world. Um, in spite of COVID, we, we have uh, moved all of our programs, as, as many folks have, to um, online format. So rather than doing our face-to-face roundtables for the Women's Advantage, um, we're now offering all of our programs on Zoom, which has actually been a real added benefit because it allows us to bring women together from various parts of the country and the world to um, discuss topics rather than saying, well, we just need to work with women in Philadelphia. We just need to work with women in Charlotte, where, where we have have a uh, a chair. So, um, so that's been really, really beneficial to us. Um, you know, it's, it's the, the lemons into lemonade kind of thing. Um, I do want to share with you though, that I'm also a, a founder of an organization called Excel Ventures, which is an angel fund for women. Um, first of all, most people don't know that women only get 2.3% of all angel fund fund. So women owned businesses and women-led businesses are only getting less than 3% of all angel funding. So the goal of our um, angel investment fund is to have, uh, it's all women, and we're focusing really on um, women-led businesses in the state of North Carolina because that's where we're based. And we are working to support these women-led businesses and at the same time educate 
women about how to be investors, how to do how to do due diligence to understand if a company is a good investment, those kinds of things, which a lot of women have hesitated to become investors in the past because they feel like, well, I don't have any experience in that. So here we have women who do have experience in that, who are heading up groups, teaching other women who don't have experience in that how to do it with the goal of just increasing the number of female angel investors in the country. That is excellent, Mary. Um, I, you know, I, I hope we can share some of that information with our listeners. And if they're in the North Carolina um, area, I'm sure that they will reach out. Sure, sure, yeah. So well, yes, they, you know, XL, X-E-L-L-E, X-E-L-L-E Ventures. Um, okay. You know, they can just search on that and, and find out all about it. Terrific. Well, thanks for checking in, Mary. I hope you have a wonderful holiday and stay in touch. And the same to you. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. We've never experienced a year like 2020. A deadly pandemic, political division, social unrest, natural disasters. Yet, we're still here, and now so are the holidays. Hi, I'm John Doherty. May this holiday season bring you joy and peace. May 2021 be a better year for all of us. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy and Healthy New Year. Happy Holidays from IBEW Local 98. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Welcome in. If you are just joining us, my very special guest this evening is Angelou Ezelo. And Angelou is the CEO and founder of the Greening Youth Foundation, which is an international environmental nonprofit whose mission is to engage underserved youth and young adults while connecting them to the outdoors and careers in conservation. So we've had a really wonderful um, conversation in the first hour learning about Angelou's background and where she came from and and why the love of nature. And uh, now I wanna really dive in and and find out exactly what is Greening Youth Foundation and what what do you do? Sure, sure, thank you, Sue. So it's 15 years now that um, Greeny Youth Foundation has really been working to engage underrepresented youth and young adults in this whole conservation world. So because kind of as we spoke about earlier with me, um, although I had this love for the outdoors and I certainly demonstrated characteristics in which you would think people would say, you should look into, you know, land conservation as a career or environmentalism or or the various careers that exist. However, that was never really something that was uttered in my family. And and I think in large part it's because 
in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't something that African-Americans saw as being um, uh, uh, just something that they would encourage their young girl to pursue, the da- their daughter to pursue. And in fact, that's what my parents told me. Um, so I went the, the kind of like one of those traditional um, middle class um, routes is I became an attorney. But, you know, I know that, you know, and I, I'm not regretting my my career, my initial career choice, because I still use a lot of those skills. Like I'm able to, I have no trepidation at all when we're doing contracts or even when speaking publicly because of my training as an attorney. But what I'm seeing and what I saw was that, you know, so many young people that look like me aren't given this opportunity or this on-ramp. So that's in large part the big reason why Greening Youth Foundation came to being is because I wanted to make sure that young adults and young people of color um, understood that they played a vital role in this environmental space, a space that doesn't necessarily represent them now, or they don't. We don't see that representation there. So that's exactly what Green Youth Foundation, and that's the focus. So it started off with you know um, um, my my colleague Ruth Kitchen, who's now still on our board, and um, she's an educator. And then Mike Finn, who is our technical um, uh, advisor, then director, who is an engineer who lives in our neighborhood, and and my partner, who's still very much a big part of my life, but also a big part of uh, Green Foundation, my husband, who James Ezio, who's our chief strategy officer. And we did all this work, you know, it's passion work, and we were working in, in school. So our programs are that are all focused on that mission is – you know, we have an environmental education program, and that's actually how it started. We were doing environmental education programs, and I start that the idea kind of came to me when I was doing um, an Earth Day program at my youngest son's kindergarten class, and and just seeing the response, you know, that the children had and the teachers in the whole school had to this this activity and to this program that I did is really what kind of spark this um, kind of idea of perhaps this is something we should be doing for all children um, and and making it fun. And that's what the focus was, really talking to them about sustainability and environmentalism, but from a fun lens. So we incorporated music and um, games and everything to teach them about watersheds and composting and recycling and all of that. Um, and then, you know, so we responded to an RFP that the Department of Interior put out, I think it was about in 2008, in which we were successful to provide paid internship opportunities for diverse young people to work on federal lands across the country, with, starting with the National Park Service. So that was really the start of bringing the organization to another level. So at, at that point, Prior to that, we were doing these environmental education programs across Gwinnett County in Georgia, you know, at these big schools and focusing on um, the fourth grade. Uh, We then, at that point, brought it into, we realized that we needed to be engaging 
underrepresented young people. Although the children that we were engaging out in the burbs, you know, they were very receptive and it was, you know, fantastic because we had usually the mothers that were volunteering. We did parades and Earth Day fun festivals, all sorts of cool stuff. And our kids were right there in the middle of it. But we re- I realized that we weren't necessarily reaching the children that needed it the most because a lot of the students that we were engaging out in the burbs these weren't new terms to them. They were, they had, they were, they were familiar with it, and you know, it was really received well. But I still felt that until we can bring all children up to this level in which they have this basic understanding of, of uh, sustainability and conservation, we still had a lot of work to do. So that's when we moved the work into the inner city of Atlanta, and we were now you know, working with Title I schools and engaging black and brown youth that, you know, didn't have exposure to this this sort of information. But, you know, when we were, so in addition to doing that, um, we started really doing this Youth Conservation Corps program. So we were now providing, you know, interns to parks, national parks across the country. So, you know, through our, which is our flagship program called our HBCUI program, which stands for Historically Black College and University Internship, excuse me, program. We started pairing students from HBCUs to um, national parks across the country. And it was kind of a really, talk about another aha moment, because it was a great way for these students to have exposure to these national parks by way of a paid internship experience. Mm, so that's so smart. Wow. That's so yes, actionable. Yep. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. And you know, the the parks were really excited about it because they hadn't been engaging this demographic before. The students were excited about it because they had no idea that these parks even real they didn't differentiate in their minds local parks you know to state parks or national parks so they were learning about these national parks so now they were working in these national parks getting paid telling their family members so and their community members their church members so it really was this triple this um triple benefit like and it was a an effect that really started spreading to their communities as well um, and then it spread. So we went from the National Park Service, as I said, to the USDA Forest Service doing the same type of engaging um, Hispanic-serving institutions, tribal colleges, and introducing these students to these different federal lands. And then it moved into U.S. Um, Fish and Wildlife, and then we moved it to Borough Land Management and NOAA and so forth. Angelou, can you tell me about some other programs that you run through the foundation? Sure. I mean, we realized that our Youth Conservation Corps program was it was doing really well, but it was focused on college students and, you know, those students that were they were diverse young people that needed to be have access to these on-ramps and internship opportunities within our federal um, uh, on, on federal lands. But we said, and I think it was James that said, what about these young adults that aren't going to college? That's such a huge swath of, you know, our population, especially nowadays, they're, they're just choosing different pathways for whatever reason, whether they're, they don't have the money, you know, they didn't grow up with that being something that everyone's saying you should do, or just, they just wanted to, you know, do a, a trade or learn a skill. 
So that's when, in 2014, our Urban Youth Corps program was born. And that one, that program is, I mean, these young people come from very challenging backgrounds, but that is more like the traditional core of, like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's The New Deal, um, where we are providing jobs to a demographic of young men and women that are, in this case, really interested in doing work in the outdoors. So we're providing them with um, hard skills, and so they're learning green infrastructure, you know, working alongside building parks and, you know, uh, solar technicians and, you know, working on prescribed burns and um, green infrastructure and so forth, So and arborists. So they're learning all these really cool trades. But in addition to that, our team over at our Urban Conservation Training Institute, they're also teaching them those soft skills that we know they need in order to be successful in life. Mm, so they're learning yes. about financial literacy and professional development, like how to write emails properly, not using, like, text <laughs> language you know so they're learning a lot and it's been you know we're and they're also americorps members so they're getting that educational um uh grant as well so they're attending school together as a cohort so at that program we're really proud of and i just want to lastly say about our programs our international programs so we're doing work in africa because we believe that you know this environmental degradation that we're experiencing here in the u.s unfortunately there's no walls you know, so people always say there's so much work to be done here, but I also believe we need to be doing work in other countries as well. So that is um, we're doing work in West Africa, working on um, reforestation projects, solar, bringing it to countries that are in desperate need of alternatives, um, alternative energy, um, as well as workforce development, getting the young people engaged in some of this natural resource management. Oh, it's so awesome. It's so awesome what you're doing. And listen, we should talk about the funding. Um, you know, that's probably one of your, if I were to ask you what is the, one of your greatest challenges, my guess is it would be about funding. Um, yeah. I, have a, I have a quote here where you actually said, the funding we receive is so restricted that it leaves very little room for innovation. And um, what I'd like to talk about is why is it so restrictive and, and what would you like to do if you had the funding that you really um, wanted? You know, what would be a priority? We're actually going to go right. into another break. We can talk about that when we come back. I'm talking with Angelou Azillo, and she is the CEO and founder of the Greening Youth Foundation. Stay with us for our watch team and we will be right back. Now, the women to watch. Marketing Watch. Hi, everyone. I'm Lynn Falconio, Chief Marketing Officer of Publicis Health for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. Last week, we talked about the hard-hit travel and hospitality sectors and how we're starting to see slight rebounds in leisure travel, especially to domestic destinations where sun or snow are plentiful and there's ample space to socially distance. Beyond launching new routes, airlines also are seeking to increase passenger confidence through innovative new partnerships with trusted household brands like Lysol, Clorox, and Purell, as well as trusted hospital systems like the Mayo and Cleveland Clinics. Three major carriers have all launched campaigns to communicate safety measures, Delta's Care Standards, American's Clean Commitment, and United's Clean Plus are great examples. While price and convenience continue to weigh heavily into decision-making when it comes to travel, 
health and safety has become a top priority. Subsequently, how brands adjust to account for COVID-19 and how they communicate those changes will have a direct impact on the recovery of the industry. For example, the Delta Care standard brings telemedicine to the gate for passengers who are unable to wear masks, and each passenger is empowered with their own Lysol wipe and hand sanitizing packet upon boarding. We're also seeing travel brands pull best practices from my industry, healthcare marketing, producing high quality content and using scientific storytelling to address concerns like why airplane cabin air is safe to breathe. In an era when every decision is a health decision, health and safety is both essential to fighting the pandemic and also a competitive advantage for brands. The ultimate deliverable of marketing is confidence. And right now, travel brands can provide that by listening to science, partnering with medical experts and trusted household names, and providing information to make an informed decision on how to travel. For Women to Watch Marketing Watch, I'm Lynn Falconia. Now, the Women to Watch, Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. As I do every time this year, I'd like to share some interesting technology gift ideas. I did some research on new gadgets, and there are two that repeatedly came up. First is Dodo, spelled D-O-D-O-W, which is an incredible lull lamp that helps you fall asleep two and a half times faster. I don't know about anyone else, but these days there's so much that keeps me awake at night, I just can't seem to get my brain to shut off. So this product is first on my list to invest in. Dodo is a metronome light scientifically designed to block out overactive thought patterns and lull you into a deep, peaceful sleep fast. Working to combine yoga, meditation, and behavioral therapy, Dodo is the safe way for anyone to fall asleep effortlessly and stay asleep throughout the night. Using Dodo is so effective that customers report falling asleep before the eight-minute mode ends and after a few months not needing Dodo to fall asleep anymore. In fact, this product works so well that it also comes with a 100-day money-back guarantee. Next on my list is FitTrack, which is a revolutionary new scale that not only weighs you, but lets you look inside your body. It provides information that can give you a bit of insight to reasons why you may be feeling unhealthy or sluggish. Thanks to the developments in consumer technology through FitTrack, it's now possible to see inside your body and track vital health signals in the comfort of your own home. FitTrack monitors 17 key health insights. It includes data on your body fat percentage, muscle and bone mass, hydration levels, and other information that can help you make smarter decisions about your health. My personal trainer travels with his, and although I hate stepping on it, it really provides helpful information that allows me to make adjustments in my lifestyle. If you have other technology gadgets to share, email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thanks so much for being with us this evening. I'm having such a great conversation with Angelou Ezelo 
the CEO and founder of the Greening Youth Foundation. And, you know, Angelou, anytime I speak to um, leaders in the nonprofit, the funding is always one of the greatest challenges. And um, I read that you said, you know, it's so restrictive, the funding that you receive. I wanted to know why and, you know, what would you do if you had the funding you that required no restrictions around it? Absolutely. And as a leader of a nonprofit organization, we love hearing that question because that's, you know, we want to share, you know, with folks that may be interested in supporting this cause that their contributions and donations are just so important because it is, in fact, what keeps us going. But the, just to, to, to be directly responsive to your question, for our programs, we, we operate under our business structure is more of a fee-for-service. So we have agreements with our federal partners to provide in exchange for these trained young people that we provide them with to work on their land. They pay us for the management of, you know, we are able to provide them with budgets that include the management and training and HR and everything that goes along with having them successfully work on their land. But there's no room in these budgets for, you know, development and marketing and, you know, things like that, which is where a lot of the creativity and, and, and as you said, innovation comes from. So it's good in a way, you know, because nonprofits typically don't have a fee-for-service type model and they're almost like 100% reliant on grants and donors and sponsors, which can, you know, like a lot of nonprofits, uh, particularly in the environmental field, um, kind of had to close their doors this year because of COVID. Yes, so that's yes. kind of the, the tough side of, you know, running a nonprofit. But so so the fact that we have these, um, you know, these federal contracts are great for us and majority of our revenue is fee-for-service. But so that's the positive. Like, obviously, we were able to thrive through this um, COVID, you know, period when a lot of uh, others didn't, didn't experience that. But I would say the the negative side of that is the restriction. So because a majority of our our dollars come from these federal contracts, there isn't a whole lot of room for expansion and growth. And, you know, that's where those unrestricted dollars are just golden. Because when we get these, these dollars from donations and sponsors, I mean, grants usually have restrictions as well. So, you know, that's why just, you know, to, to share with your with the audience about nonprofits, the, the golden standard is the unrestricted dollar because you're able to pretty much do whatever you need to do as an organization to keep it going to support the cause. Um, right. And that's usually what, you know, environmental leaders, I mean, nonprofit leaders are looking for. And, you know, it's always about engaging and finding the right people who um, are interested in your cause as well, right? right. Because there's so many right. people, you know, needing funds for different things. Let's talk about your book for a moment, Engage, Connect, and Protect. And it's really about empowering youth um, to be environmental leaders. Tell me why you decided to write the book and, and what the readers will find in it. Sure. Um, I really wanted to debunk this stereotype that, people of color are not interested in the environment. Um, so I, you know, one, the book is, so So to, to, my main thing is, you know, usually when I go a place to speak or when they hear what Green Youth Foundation is all about, and I'm speaking of 
uh, mainstream white environmental organizations, they always say to me, Angela, this sounds great, but I just don't know. Are they out there? I just don't know where to find these diverse young people. So this book is a direct response to that inquiry because it's all in this book. Like I've provided like a database and it's all sorts of appendices on, you know, where to find these, these young people. So I list all of the HBCUs, they're alphabetized and they're, you know, provided by discipline and by state and all of that, as well as Hispanic serving institutions, as well as tribal colleges. But not only that, I do provide organizations that are targeting, you know, this demographic and this specific um, focal area within environmentalism. So I always encourage partnerships. So look in, and that's also there in this book. Look, if, if you're in Colorado, I provided organizations that are working on this specific issue, focusing on diverse people or diverse communities or diverse youth. So I provided it for partnership purposes. But I also wanted to provide a book that kind of was my journey as an African-American entrepreneur. So, um, you know, for those budding entrepreneurs out there so that they can understand that what it looks like, it's not easy, you know, so how initially I couldn't cash my own check for me. It just always was in my backpack because I need to make sure everybody else got paid, the staff got paid, the students got paid. So I wanted to share, but also to, to, to kind of shine a critical eye on um, the environmental movement and perhaps kind of get to the bottom of why it's still so homogeneous in 2020 in light of all of the communities of, um, that exist and organizations that exist that are working on this issue that come from different demographics. So um, it's a really exciting read. I, I wrote it with my brother, actually, Nick Childs. Who oh, is, how um, nice. Yes, yes. He's an amazing writer. He's written so many books. Um, he's an award-winning writer, but I figure, you know, it's one thing for us to, um, as change makers, to do this work. It's another to put it on paper. So I said, if I have someone like this in my family, I might as well work with the, what I have, which is, you know, this amazing writer. So we really had, it was our first time ever doing a project like this together. So I know people will enjoy it, so they have to pick it up. That's awesome. Tell me, tell me how you've been, you know, handling, managing personally and emotionally um, this time with the pandemic. You know, you're someone who enjoys traveling and being out uh, and about, right? And I oh think a lot of us are, are in that boat. How have you been managing, you know, the stress of it and just, it's tough. It's really tough to you not know, be. It, you're so right, Sue. I mean, it, it's been a, quite an adjustment. I mean, I, the amount of travel, I mean, I'm platinum on Delta for a reason. I literally travel all over the country and world, you know, doing the work that I do and, you know, on projects or even, you know, speaking events and so forth. So, but I have to say, and I think a lot of people probably out there would agree that although COVID obviously has been, you know, extremely um, you know, tragic and, you know, taken away so many loved ones. But the positive side of it is that the environment certainly has benefited from us not being in these airplanes all the time or on the yes. roads as much. 
yes, you know, birds yes. and, you know, waterways and everything. I feel like this was Mother's Nature, Mother Nature's way of saying, okay, you guys clearly can't do this on your own, so I'm just going to go ahead and stop everything so that I can heal. So, yeah. you know, there's been right. a lot of that um, and a lot of interesting stories that we've been hearing, but it's been you know, I've had my two sons, you know, like I mentioned, the youngest one is the one kind of who uh, was the impetus for all of this. But now he's 19. And my other son, who's, who is at Howard University is um, in his final year, is just is about to turn 22. So, you know, for, I haven't had both of them home, you know, as long as they were home over the they came home in March and they were here until August. My, my youngest is now in school in Madrid. And, you know, so it's just been a really special time for families, you know, bonding and, you know, just spending time with our dog that's probably so sick of going on walks because we're all <laughs> like, take you on a walk. Again? <laughs> exactly. The dogs are like, I just went on a walk. I'm good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, been, there's it's so been quiet time. Yeah. I think, you're, you know, if there are. I think that people are are always talking about it's such an awful, awful thing that's happened, the pandemic. And yet there's these um, light spots. And I guess, yes, I'm so curious as to what's going to happen then again on the flip side when we open back up. I remember early on seeing pictures of the clean water in places where it wasn't. So what do you think is you know when we but we need to be out and about with people and and creating and building so um what is your thoughts on when we do open back up how can we do it in a better way yes yes i mean i think you know we need we have to we have to retain some of this i'm hoping that you know these feelings and calmness you know that we have and our our mental health you know and obviously there's that other side you know some people are really going bonkers being in the house you know all this time but you know there there's just so many um positive things that i think we we have to retain so we have to create a new normal you know like a new way of doing business obviously Having everything being virtual, like if I see one more Zoom meeting, I'm going to go crazy. (laughs) I'm really so tired of that. But so we have to touch and see each other. But at the same time, everybody was really effective and efficient working virtually. That's right. Do we really need to be back in the office 100%? I don't really think so. And we're, we're certainly reconsidering whether we need to all go back into the office commuting you know from an hour away and putting the cars back on the road so i think that um everyone will really and and just like you know with all the 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 racial tension over the the killings of george floyd and and others over the summer you know what we're seeing that's needed is reform on so many levels Yes. You know, there's, there's, you know, lots of um, crises that we're experiencing. So it's really an interesting time in society in which I think we just have to really pause and be thoughtful and intentional about how we re-engage on so many levels. You know, and the other thing I've seen is is more and more people coming forward with big ideas and, and changing yes. systems that have been in place, Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And I love that. I love that. I'm actually an Ashoka fellow, and I'm not sure if you're familiar, but, you know, um, the organization is all about identifying social entrepreneurs, change makers, people who are working on changing systems that are broken, whether it's in poverty or education or environment or all these different fields. So it's very refreshing to be a part of it. It's like a lifetime fellowship to be a part of this organization that gives you this platform as a social entrepreneur, because that's exactly what we're seeing is needed right now are big and bold ideas to kind of change what we know is not working. That's right. And in my last question, we just have a minute. Tell me why Dr. Wangari, is it Matai? Is Matai. There you go. You're, well, I know she's one of your greatest inspirations. Why? She is. She's my hero. And it's her, her, the thing that I love the most that she says is even in the most difficult times, are opportunities and i feel that i mean she was the first uh african woman to receive the nobel peace prize for her work in sustainable agriculture out of kenya her project was the green belt movement and still going on today being led by her daughter i believe um and her whole thing was about trees and empowering women um to to lead these different uh the movements to bring community and the environment together. And her book, Unbowed, literally changed my life. So, you know, I I really believe that um, we have to start in in our communities, but we also have to think about global impact. And that's something that she certainly did. And I hope to do one day. That's awesome. Well, you're doing it. You're absolutely doing it. And I'm so grateful um, to have you on the show this evening. It was really great to speak to you. And I wish you continued success, Angelou. Thank you so much, Sue. I really love your show. And I appreciate you having me on your show so that I can share our message at Green Youth Foundation. Happy to do it. Now, the Women to Watch, Military Watch. Hi. I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military and Veteran Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal, and I'm happy to be with you again this evening. Today, we celebrate the United States National Guard's 384th birthday. It was this day in 1636 that the first militia regiments in North America were organized in Massachusetts, as we know of them as the Minutemen. Now, if you're thinking, wait, That's older than the Army. You're absolutely correct. Our ability to recognize today as the National Guard's birthday dates back to the Militia Act in 1792, which permitted militia units organized before May 8, 1792, to retain their customary privileges. This long legacy of service continues today, with more than 450,000 service members in the National Guard spread across units in each state, each U.S. territory, and Washington, D.C. These members from the Army and Air Force components report to each state governor as their commander-in-chief, while the president may request from the governors to use the National Guard units as part of federal missions, such as our overseas deployments. For the first time in American history, every state mobilized units of their National Guard in 2020 to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Since March, nearly 50,000 National Guard service members have been mobilized to help provide essential services to communities hardest hit by COVID-19. 
Among them are more than 24 Comcast NBC Universal employees who have been on the front lines of fighting the pandemic, working hand-in-hand with healthcare and emergency workers to distribute food, move essential equipment to where it's needed, and to set up testing sites. These military teammates exemplify the spirit of service and answering the call when their country needs them most. We are so very proud of them. We recently posted an article and video highlighting some of our military employees' experiences transitioning from their Comcast job to their military roles to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a look and learn more about their stories by going to corporate.comcast.com forward slash press. See you next week. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Now, Women on the Fly. Hi, Sue Rocco here with Angelou Azillo. Angelou, how do you start your day? Meditating. What is your mantra for stressful moments? This too shall pass. That's one of my favorites. Are you a planner or more spontaneous? Both. Where are you typically when inspiration strikes? Outdoors. Of course. A place place you've traveled to that you'd love to go back. Zanzibar. How do you unwind? With a glass of Merlot. Actually, Cabernet. (laughs) (laughs) What's your definition of feminism today? The the importance of, um, my definition is being, having the agency to effectuate change embodied in a, a woman. Tell me three words that describe you. Fun, daring, and empathetic. How about a book you'd recommend to our listeners? Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And my last question for you, how do you end your day? Usually with Trevor Noah (laughs) on The Daily Show. Oh, okay. That's it for our Women on the Fly. Coming up next is our Coach's Corner podcast, which is a shorter version of our weekly show and can be heard wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm BJ Gray with this week's Coach's Corner. Goodbye 2020. I always start winding down the year and preparing for a new one by saying goodbye to everything that caused pain, grief, or frustration in my life. I don't want to harbor any bad energy into the new year, so I write forgiveness letters. I don't send them, but I forgive each and every person or situation that made me mad, sad, or hurt. A forgiveness letter might go like this. Dear boss, this past year I felt hurt and cast aside and discounted under your leadership. I forgive you for not helping change the perception of me to other leaders. I forgive you for not sticking up for me in the scenarios that took place around the merger. I forgive you for not having my back and giving me the benefit of the doubt. And I forgive you for not trusting me. Forgiveness letters have been one technique that helps me let go of the arguments I have in my head about things that have happened. 
it's a very cathartic exercise for letting go of the emotional factor. It's not about making it right, but about taking out the bad energy. This is just part of gaining mental fitness. Becoming a coach has taught me that these arguments are just thoughts in my head, and I know that nobody else can make me feel a certain way, only my own thinking. But forgiveness letters are my process to change the narrative and to let go of what was and start retelling the story, maybe from someone else's perspective. That doesn't justify what happened, but it helps me understand others' humanness. You try it. Write forgiveness letters to the things or the situations or people that you can't stop having anxiety over, and then work on letting go, because there's no such thing as old pain. My master coach, Brooke Castillo, always preaches, you cannot experience pain from the past. What happened is over. The only pain you're experiencing is the pain you create now by thinking about it. I try to be grateful for the experience I'm forgiving. Viktor Frankl, the author of Man in Search of Meaning, said this, Forces beyond our control have the power to strip us of everything, except for one thing, and that's the decision on how we're going to respond. Thanks for listening to this edition of Coach's Corner. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn or at bjgray.com. Until next time, I'm BJ from Coach's Corner. That is it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Stay tuned for my interview next week with author and entrepreneur Katie Falinger. Have a great week, everyone, and continue to enjoy the holidays. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.